This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Last week we did uh, something we had not done for quite a long time, which was make an appearance at KDVS to assist in their annual Pledge Drive program. Sadly, it appears the station fell far short of its uh, targeted goal of fundraising, which means the fundraising must go on. We hope uh, that uh, listeners to this program who enjoy it exclusively to the web will nevertheless consider helping this most worthy terrestrial station get its message out and and our message out. To do that, you should look up kdvs.org and noodle around a bit, see if you can find out where to donate donate money, if you're so inclined. Our, our thanks go to Guy Tortorisi, who was uh, flying the plane as yours truly played wingman. I must say, Guy had quite a few interesting questions uh, for, you know, for us, for Radio Parallax, the history of what we have done, and and um, I think sort of sparked an idea that we, we may want to go back and piece together some of our um, memorable moments Speaking with some of our eminent guests, we, we've oftentimes re-aired entire segments, but excerpting them and making a, a narrative out of that would be, uh, would be, I think, worth our while. A lot of work, but I think worth our while and something we'll have to look at doing down the road here a bit. After all, we can do whatever we want. And frankly, we enjoy being somewhat loosely organized on this program. It gives us a lot of freedom. In fact, I'm going to start out today's program with, with something that shocks me a little bit. In fact, the headline from New Scientist magazine is Shock Result Stuns Physicists. The story by Alex Wilkins points out that the W boson is slightly heavier than we think. In fact, 400 scientists have been looking at calculating the, uh, the figure for the W boson's mass. They were using data from the Tevatron Collider at Fermilab in Illinois and came up with a number of 80.4335 giga electron volts. Now, of course, as you're no doubt well aware, the generally accepted mass is 80.379 giga electron volts. Now, the article explains that they spent a lot of time coming up with this figure, and they say that it appears to be very, very accurate. But you do have to wonder, they, they, they smashed together a beam of protons and antiprotons and analyzed the particles produced, and that analysis was so complex that the result took more than a decade the Tevatron evidently shut down in 2011, but they note its potential implications are huge. And while this may be so, we here at Radio Parallax have decided that we're just going to put it out of our minds and not worry about it. And doggone it, we wish these physicists all the luck in the world in, in resolving this discrepancy. Another item from the world of science, in this case also from New Scientist, was uh, a piece from March that pointed out that there's a pink lake in Western Australia that they did DNA sequencing on, on the microbes in that lake, and, and apparently concluded that the lake contained almost 500 different types of extremophiles, organisms that thrive in extreme environments. In this case, I guess, a very salty environment. There's a picture in the magazine, and, and by God, it is a pink lake. No two ways about it. They point out that these extremophiles evidently produce purple, red, and orange pigments known as carotenoids, which may provide some protection against the extreme saltiness, and it certainly does provide the lake's color. 
Well, what strikes me as odd about this is if you live in the Bay Area and you've ever driven across the Dumbarton Bridge and you've observed the salt ponds that are adjacent to the bridge, you know that certain times of the year they also turn red or pink or orange or some variation. This happens as the saltiness of the ponds gets extreme, and I'm pretty sure then results in extremophiles thriving. In Mark Kurlansky's book, Salt, A World History, he addresses this issue. He notes that in 1906, E.C. Teodoresco identified an algae, what they described as a one-celled plant, that lived in the brine, turned it green, and later on, brine shrimp and worms turned it red, or so it says in, the, in, in Kurlansky's book. We think it was extremophiles all along. And yes, it is true that apparently the reddish color of these animals attracts flamingos, which eat them and then themselves turn pink. Kurlansky says that Darwin had figured out this entire mystery in the 19th century, but few listened to him until well into the 20th century. Anyway, it's good to know that if you're intent upon seeing extremophiles, you don't have to go to Western Australia or Eastern Africa. You just have to go drive over the Dumbarton Bridge at the right time of the year. You know, I, I just like saying the Dumbarton Bridge. Oh, sure, in the Bay Area, everybody knows the Golden Gate Bridge. Everybody knows the Bay Bridge. I mean, lots of folks go over the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge or the San Mateo Bridge. But advocates for the Dumbarton would point out you can drive over those, those bridges all you want. You're not going to see orangish-colored salt ponds about to crystallize. By the way, a little-known piece of trivia in the movie Harold and Maude... There's a scene where they're driving around, they stop right at what used to be the toll plaza there at the Coyote Hills. Instantly recognizable to those who knew the lay of the land. And speaking of knowing the lay of the land, according to the New York Times, some scientists tested people's navigational abilities by using data from a smartphone game, which is called Sea Hero Quest. And we're not sure we can vouch for this, this data set, but the researchers concluded that country folk who grew up on winding roads, are better at navigating than urbanites raised among neatly laid-out grids. They apparently took a look at 400,000 players of this game and found a clear divide. If you grew up outside cities, you had an edge in navigating, no matter your age, gender, or education. So how about that? And since we are starting out in a rather random fashion today, we would note that over in France, Macron was re-elected. Marie Le Pen did not do all that well, although they're, they're saying it was surprisingly close. She only got like 41% of the vote. A 59 to 41% uh, election result in America would be considered a landslide. Anyway, we noted on this program that Putin's foe, Alexander Navalny, had suggested that Marie Le Pen was getting help from the Kremlin before the vote as one of Putin's efforts uh, to confuse and uh, divide his enemies. As you are no doubt well aware, there are some who uh, point out that Putin did the same thing here in the U.S. of A. The briefing section of the Week magazine in March had a, um, a surprising section, had a surprising headline, which was, Could the U.S. Try to Kill Putin? Stephen Kinzer pointed out that the war in Ukraine has sparked talk of regime change in Moscow, but uh, the history of U.S. efforts to kill heads of state was described as not encouraging. We here at Radio Parallax would point out that uh, there were numerous successes in this endeavor. They just didn't have quite a high as batting average as they would have liked. But the article by Stephen Kinzer contained um, 
one little item I, I was unaware of that I wanted to talk about. Well, Kinzer said, as, as far as is known, Dwight Eisenhower was the first president to order the assassination of a foreign political leader. He began by targeting Zhou Enlai, or Zhou Enlai, however you want to pronounce it, in China during the 1950s. He was, of course, uh, number two in the Chinese Communist Party to Chairman Mao. Eisenhower and nearly every other policymaker in Washington considered the Red Chinese to be maniacal fanatics, said Kinzer, bent upon world conquest. When Zhou announced in 1955 he would travel to Bandung, Indonesia for a conference of Asian and African leaders, the CIA saw a chance to kill him. Cho chartered an Air India jet for his flight to Bandung. It exploded in midair, killing 16. But it turns out Zhou had not boarded that aircraft. China called it murder by the special service organizations of the United States. And it's hard to call the death of those 16 people anything else but... Kinzer notes that after Zhou landed safety on an, another flight, CIA Director Alan Dulles decided to try again. He directed the chief of the CIA's chemical division, Sidney Gottlieb, to prepare poison. Gottlieb, one of the great poisoners of the modern era, made one that would kill Zhou 48 hours after it was dropped into his rice bowl, presumably after he was back home in China, giving the Americans plausible deniability. Reportedly, the plot was aborted at the last moment when General Lucian Truscott Jr., then serving as a deputy CIA director, learned of it and exploded in anger. Fearing that CIA involvement would become known, according to his biographer, he confronted Dulles and forced him to cancel the operation. Now, Sidney Gottlieb destroyed all of his files when he left the CIA in 1973, and Kinzer notes, as a result, and because of the tradition that assassination orders must never be explicit, no details of the Zhou Enlai plot have been discovered. We need to talk to uh, our favorite clinical pharmacist, Howard McKinney, about uh, Sidney Gottlieb. I'm sure he's got a, a thing or two to say about that. And we, we do want to note, and I should note it as the show began, that we will be speaking with Howard in our second segment today about some drug options that are available and are probably going to become more important as Roe v. Wade is altered or thrown out by the Supreme Court. The medical options are not a walk in the park, but they are generally quite safe, and we're going to talk a bit about that in segment two. One thing we like to talk about here, as I think we just did, was things that are not generally known that that should be. I certainly thought of that when I stumbled upon another episode involving assassination. This was The Economist, April 9th issue of this year, talking about Mario Terran Salazar, a man I'd never heard of. He was apparently the Bolivian soldier who actually killed Che Guevara. He died this March at age 80. What struck me about this piece was how they appear to have gotten it wrong. The article claims that it was the president of Bolivia, Rene Barrientos, who wanted to ensure that Guevara was killed, whereas the U.S. wanted to bring him back and try him. Some years ago, I saw a very lengthy documentary about how it was that Che Guevara was tracked down. It was a very, very expensive operation involving flights out of Panama using infrared technology to fly over the Bolivian jungle to find the campfires of the rebels, which they did day after day, tracking him and then allowed them to send the Bolivians in. Of course, when they say send the Bolivians in, the Bolivians had some advisors with them like Felix Rodriguez, later involved in the Iran-Contra scandal and good friend of 
George Herbert Walker Bush. The documentary made it clear that Rodriguez was in charge of the capture and subsequent execution of Che Guevara, no matter what The Economist says. And I'm going to stake out the position that that is the more correct version of events. Although I think the sordid details in The Economist of how it was they shot Che are probably accurate, which included the fact that they shot him in the legs first to present a story that he was killed in battle. Another miscellaneous article that I had not noticed the first time was the reporting in the week about Imran Khan being ousted as the uh, prime minister in Pakistan. I didn't really note the subtlety in the headline about the event, which was Pakistan, colon, Khan's Trumpian attempt to keep power fails. In the piece, it mentioned that faced with a vote of no confidence, the former cricket star illegally dissolved the Pakistani parliament and tried to stay on after the Supreme Court ruled that action unconstitutional. But it didn't work. He's now a private citizen relaxing in Mar-a-Lago. Actually, as far as we know, he's not relaxing in Mar-a-Lago. But if Trump does decide to, uh, to host a, uh, a gathering of uh, deposed wannabe dictators, I, I hope he'll extend an invitation to, uh, to, to Mr. Khan. And other political nuttiness, how's this little item? According to The Week, and this is from a couple weeks back, Israel's coalition government lost its majority when a conservative lawmaker defected over a Passover dispute. Coalition Whip Idit Silman, a religious lawmaker from Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's Yamina party, joined the opposition after the health ministry instructed hospitals to allow visitors to bring leavened bread, which is not kosher for Passover, onto their premises during the holiday. Yes, that outrageous action (laughs) caused this politician in Israel to switch parties and change the coalition government. Mr. McMillan? Yes, that's pretty cuckoo. And I think at this juncture, I'd like to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week recently for screen time. After zookeepers at Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo said that Amare, a 415-pound gorilla, is so addicted to the smartphone photos and videos park visitors have been showing him through the glass partition that he is now ignoring the other gorillas. We would like to state here at Radio Parallax that please, if you are traveling to Chicago and plan to visit the Lincoln Park Zoo, please try to resist showing Amari photos and videos on your cell phone. And please, don't feed him either. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for historical examples. After Tennessee Republican State Senator Frank Nicely cited Adolf Hitler as proof that homelessness isn't a dead end, claiming that the genocidal leader lived on the streets, but he went on to lead a life that got him in the history books. 
Well, it's inspiring, isn't it, that this Republican state senator thinks that out there among the homeless population, there's still plenty of Hitlers that are going to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And it was an ugly week last week for the, for the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee of Scottsdale, Arizona. Because, as it turns out, two members of the Scottsdale, Arizona Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee accused a DJ at a disco-themed school charity event of dressing up in blackface, only to be told that DJ Kim Coco Hunter is, in fact, a black man. Here's the part I like best. At that point, Stuart Roden, who I guess was the prime mover among the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusions Committee, then amended his accusation, stating that Hunter appeared to be, quote, at the very least in darker makeup, if not, quote, blackface, unquote. And, you know, I, I guess this does break some new ground. If you are, in fact, a black person, are you allowed, according to people at the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, to put on makeup that makes you look even darker? We suppose that the woke are just going to have to work that out among themselves. And finally, we have an item regarding the housing market, and we're not sure. Well, I, I guess it is good and bad and ugly all at the same time. Here's the story. An $800,000 house in Fairfax, Virginia, drew numerous offers despite a significant catch. There was a squatter and her daughter living in the basement. The listing read, Home will convey with a person, parentheses S, living in lower level with no lease in place. The listing dictated that the buyer must pay cash and cannot, in fact, see the lower level. The real estate agent said the resident weaseled her way in and the current owners can't financially or emotionally deal with an eviction. Houses in that area often go for over $1 million, which makes this price of $800,000 a potential bargain for someone with the patience to deal with an eviction. Now, Mr. Mellon does have a solution to this problem that involves a garden hose, but we have no intention of passing along that advice to the realtor out in Fairfax, Virginia. We haven't talked much about COVID lately, but uh, we do need to mention, I think, at this point, as America closes in on one million deaths from COVID-19, that in the past two years, COVID became the third most common cause of death in the U.S. Writing in The Atlantic, Ed Young pointed out that each American who's died of COVID has left an average of nine close relatives bereaved. He noted that deaths from COVID have been unexpected, untimely, particularly painful, and in many cases preventable. In one million instances, the disease has torn wounds in nine million worlds. Writing in the LA Times, Nicholas Goldberg said at the start of the pandemic, remember back in March 2020, Anthony Fauci warned the U.S. could face as many as 240,000 COVID deaths. And of course, as you no doubt remember, President Trump and his allies scoffed, urging Americans to get back to normal just after a few weeks. We all know how that worked out. The U.S. death rate per 100,000 is higher than that of pretty much every other wealthy country. Hospitalizations and deaths have finally dropped thanks to vaccination and immunity from prior infections. But scientists warn that immunity wanes against Omicron and in the U.S. and abroad, new variants are still emerging. Meanwhile, over in China, millions of people are on on lockdown. There's 26 million residents in, in Shanghai that uh, are having to deal with a surge of the Omicron variant. This is the largest lockdown in China since early 2020, 
when authorities isolated the 11 million residents of Wuhan for 76 days. Last month, Shanghai was reporting 3,500 cases a day, and it's noted this is going to represent a significant challenge for China's zero-COVID strategy, in which full-city lockdowns that slow production and disrupt global trade have been common. I'm looking at an item from uh, last August. Polling data I don't know that we mentioned on the program, but it's worth taking a look back anyway. Back on August 13, 2021, Axios Ipsos reported that 79% of vaccinated Americans blame the unvaccinated for rising cases of the coronavirus Delta variant, to which we say, duh. 36% also think former President Trump is to blame. This is among the vaccinated. Frankly, I'm surprised it's that low. 33% pointed to Fox News and conservative media for the rising cases. When you take a look at the unvaccinated, 37% of them blame people traveling to the U.S. from abroad. 27% of the unvaccinated blame the mainstream media, which of course makes total sense. And uh, 21% say it's all President Biden's fault. Reporting last August, they said 77% of Americans were self-reporting that they'd either gotten vaccinated or likely to do so. And no, we're not going to run through some of the more notorious quotes from Donald J. Trump as the pandemic was spooling out of control in the U.S. We'll only note that basic procedures that would universally be employed in the case of a pandemic were deliberately downplayed for political reasons by Trump and his allies. I still hear people say that, well, you know, masks, masks don't do any good, but they are wrong. Gary Trudeau and Doonesbury sort of backed into this, uh, this issue on, on the last Sunday comic strip, which I will try to recreate for you, even though we are not a visual medium. In the first panel, Mike Doonesbury is looking at his paper saying, Week 10 of Russia's criminal war with no end in sight. So how does Putin explain it to his own people? With relentless propaganda, of course. He then takes a look at purported Russians sitting in front of their television with a voice bubble saying, Nazis, we're fighting Nazis. Our special military operation is protecting Ukraine from Nazification and genocide. Ukrainians would have greeted our forces with flowers if they'd been in season. They welcomed their liberation. To which Doonesbury says, nuts, right? How could any people believe such a massive lie? Sixth and final panel. Well, it happens. Out of the TV box here in America, you hear, I won so strongly, believe me. To which a guy in a MAGA hat is saying, it's Nazis, Nazis stole it. To which his wife with a Q in her blouse says, wait, aren't they on our side? By the way, Alex Navalny, who we mentioned a moment ago, who's still jailed and, uh, under, under the thumb of Vladimir Putin, nevertheless got word out that he would like Western tech companies to launch an information onslaught within Russia to combat Kremlin propaganda that falsely paints Ukrainians as Nazis. Polls show that 75% of Russians support the war in Ukraine, but Navalny called those figures a Kremlin lie. In a series of tweets last week, he called on tech CEOs to run social media ads on every tablet and every phone to tell Russians the truth about mass atrocities, about the mass atrocities their military is committing. Russia has shuttered almost all independent websites and newspapers and blocked much social media. Navalny is serving just under 12 years in a penal colony, and his Twitter feed is run by colleagues. 
writing about this in the Washington Post, Eugene Robinson said that to seek the truth beyond Russia's growing digital iron curtain, Russians will have to be technically savvy and persistent. Most Russians still rely on TV and government-approved websites for their news, which are sources of comforting myths about their nation's greatness and righteousness. And bookending that, in the Daily Beast, Matt Lewis said, Sound familiar? Tens of millions of Americans who rely on Fox News, Facebook, and right-wing websites have embraced conspiracy theories claiming that Donald Trump won the 2020 election and the Democrats operate a vast pedophile ring. In Russia, Putin has shut down the alternatives to his propaganda. What's our excuse? Well, Mr. Lewis, I'm not sure who you mean by our. What you should say is what's their excuse, referring to people who don't fact check or look at anything else other than Fox News and right-wing websites. And Facebook. Facebook was, of course, instrumental, instrumental in the Trump election in 2016. One is hard-pressed to find any compelling evidence that they're not going to be of use to Donald Trump should he attempt to win the nomination of the Republican Party in 2024. I would refer you to an excellent article in The Atlantic on this topic titled After Babel, subtitled How Social Media Dissolved the Mortar of Society and Made America Stupid by Jonathan Haidt. Said hate, social media deputizes everyone to administer justice with no due process. Platforms like Twitter devolve into the Wild West with no accountability for vigilantes. A successful attack attracts a barrage of likes and follow-on strikes. Enhanced virality platforms thereby facilitate massive collective punishment for small or imagined offenses with real-world consequences, including innocent people losing their jobs and being shamed into suicide. When our public square is governed by mob dynamics unrestrained by due process, we don't get justice and inclusion. We get a society that ignores context, proportionality, mercy, and truth. It's a good article. I hope some of you will take the time to check it out. We need to take a short break. Let's do so. Joining us when we come back is our old friend Howard McKinney. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.